because we're told what we're doing is not good. And oh my God, if we're having sex more than one person, and if we're having sex outside of our primary relationship, there's a whole other layer of shame and fear and guilt associated with that. Welcome to Normalizing Non-Monogamy, the podcast where we interview incredible people from across the entire spectrum of non-monogamy to hear their fascinating stories. We strive to bring guests on the show who have a healthy approach to non-monogamy. However, it's important to remember that everyone does it a little bit differently, and the views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect our own. Additionally, we produce this show for entertainment purposes only. Please be aware that we aren't doctors or therapists. Consult a medical professional for anything regarding your health that you might learn about on the show. Enjoy! Welcome to episode three of Focus Fridays. We're Finn and Emma, and if you're new to our show and just tuning in today, this is not our normal format for our show. We typically interview people and have them tell their stories of exploring non-monogamy. These are a special series of episodes we're doing that are focusing on a topic. That's why we focus Friday. If you're looking for the other nine parts of this series, you can either wait for them to come out every Friday from here on out, or you can listen to the previous ones that are already published. Your other option is to go to our website under the courses tab at normalizingnonmonogamy.com and there is a link there that will take you to where you can download all 10 of them at once for free if you would like or if you would like to leave a donation whatever makes you feel good we appreciate your support and thank you for that so today we are talking with dr evelyn dacker She is a family physician with her own practice out in Oregon, and she also is the executive director of Sex Positive Portland. She's extremely active in sex education, and she also has a side project creating STARS, which we will actually talk about in this episode, so I'm not going to spoil it now. This is a great conversation around health and STIs, so please enjoy this discussion. All right. Awesome. Well... Welcome to the the show, Dr. Dacker. Uh, we appreciate you taking some time out of your Monday morning. It looks sunny there uh, on yes. the West Coast. It's sunny here on the East Coast, so that's good. No one's going to be envious of each other's weather. <laughs> <laughs> for I mean, for us and for for the listeners, do you mind giving us a little background of of who you are and a little bit about the work you do, both um, professionally and sort of in your, as your sort of volunteer time as well. Okay. Um, professionally, I am a board certified family physician in Salem, Oregon. I own my own practice and have a primary care practice that's based on more holistic integrative model. Uh, so we actually, at my practice, we have behavioral health, acupuncture, functional medicine, which is offered to everybody, not just people who have special insurance or can afford to pay cash. Uh, that is, and in my own practice, I tend, I specialize in women's health as well as sexual health uh, and queer health as well. Uh, in my other professional life, I'm also the executive director of Sex Positive Portland, which is an 800-plus member organization where we teach consent, boundaries, sexual communication, as well as have a lot of touch-positive events, tantric events, discussion groups. We have a whole bunch of things that we do. 
And then as a side project, I also have created a sexual communication model called STARS, which kind of helps guide you in what you need to communicate with a potential sexual partner or relationship. And then I'm also an educator where I go and teach other healthcare providers on how to be sex positive. Awesome. So, wow. That's, you have a lot going on. Busy schedule, though. <laughs> and, I do. <laughs> and, and clearly much more qualified than we are to talk about the topic of sexual health. So we're, we're excited mm-hmm. to have you on today. And, and a shout out to, to Courtney from uh, Something Positive for Positive People for putting us in contact. So um, his, mm-hmm. his little segment will be coming up after this one. So we're super excited about that one as well. Great. Yeah. So maybe just to kind of kick things off, one question we did have was we've, we've started to see a shift from the, the language of STD to STI. Do you, do you mind talking mm-hmm. a little bit about that sort of relatively recent shift in, in what is the best way moving forward for people? Well, STD was the previous uh, acronym to be used because it was sexually transmitted disease. But as we started deconstructing it, a lot of these are not diseases. You don't get a disease from chlamydia or gonorrhea. You get an infection. So the correct nomenclature is an infection. I also like it because disease just sounds like a big pathology and then dis-ease. And I really want to move away from the fact that STIs are something to be shameful about and put you at dis-ease, where really what they are is infections that we give to each other. It helps us differentiate from all the infections that we give to each other with the ones that sometimes are only passed through sex, but a lot of times they could, some of them could be passed without having sexual contact either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And what are some of the most common STIs? We know there's quite a few, but can you briefly describe some of them for our listeners who might not be familiar? Well, probably the most common one is human papillomavirus, which is a virus that has many, many different strains, like thousands and thousands of different strains. So this virus is not all sexually transmitted, like warts that you might get on your hands or skin tags that some people get on their neck is actually human papillomavirus. But there are some strains that are just sexually transmitted that only affect like the cervix or the genital skin. So genital warts is a human papillomavirus, as well as cervical uh, precancer which, or cancer, which also is human papillomavirus. And that is very, very common. The truth is, is that most people get it and they never know they have it because our immune system does a wonderful job of just clearing and fighting it. The other common sexually uh, transmitted infections is herpes simplex virus. I'll say it comes in two different strains, one and two. And one is the one that's usually around the mouth, and two is the one that's usually around the genitals. I say usually because you can get herpes type 1 in the genitals, and you could get herpes type 2 outside of the boxer short region. Those are very common. They're way more common in people who have had multiple sexual partners. And... It is probably that one infection that people are so scared of and have a lot of stigma around. The other infections that are pretty common, but usually in younger people, are chlamydia and gonorrhea. Mm -hmm. Do you have any reason why you think it's in younger people versus older? Well, it's usually in younger women because the cervical cells change and grow a lot from the age of around 16 to 25. There's a lot of just growth in those. And actually, the chlamydia bacteria just 
loves to be absorbed by that. So we actually do recommend testing on every sexually active uh, person with a vagina with a bio vagina to be tested every single year up through the age of twenty five. Okay, and probably even more frequently if you're practicing some form of non-monogamy, I would assume. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we could talk about that later. Yeah, yeah, uh, we, or sure. we could talk about that because those recommendations are a little different. I mean, there are no recommendations for men and there are no recommendations for non-monogamy. Okay. There's really only one set of recommendations that the CDC puts out. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we can definitely dig into that in a little bit. One that you, you didn't touch on that maybe people are wondering about would be HIV and AIDS. And if you're not super educated on this, that is like the STI, right? Or the STD that everybody knows about and is, and is terrified of getting. Is it, is it not as common as it once was? Or is it not as maybe big of a concern? Well, now with uh, Truveda, which is the pre-exposure prophylaxis, you could take a medicine every day that helps decrease your risk of actually obtain, of getting HIV infection. So that has just been a huge game changer in the HIV world. So people who are at risk for HIV are strongly recommended to take this every single day. Okay. And, oh, well, so the other, the other piece to that puzzle was something that, that we've heard a lot from like Dan Savage, which is the uh, undetectable equals uninfectious, I think is, is the, right. the right way to right. say it. Mm-hmm. Do you mind mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. elaborating on that a little bit for, for people? Well, when you take the, this antiviral, it's a combination of, of several antivirals. When you take it every day, it could, it could actually decrease the amount of virus that's in your body to, to like undetectable levels. And therefore you can't transmit a virus if it's not in, if you can't see it. Okay. I think that's the easiest way of putting it. Yeah. This, this, the um, PrEP, which is what it's called, actually could be almost, you know, 99% effective. There's this little bit of wiggle room if people aren't taking it every day or, you know, so it becomes like the statistics about 90%. A little bit higher in people with penises who have sex with other people with penises Mm -hmm. versus people with penises who are IV drug users or, you know, because that's also recommended in people who are IV drug users, who may be sex workers. It's also recommended for that class of people as well. Okay. And um, it's a little less effective in that grouping. For, for sure. And just a quick clarification, the, the drugs that you would be on if you had HIV that would make you undetectable, that is different from Truveda, correct? Truveda... No, is, it's, it's, actually, it's actually the same drugs. Is it? It's just a different combination of them. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Good. I, I had no idea. So I appreciate that clarification. Thank you. Which STIs do you see that are actually pose a true risk to your health, which a lot of, or versus like an overblown stigma that a lot of them have. HIV, syphilis, herpes type two, depending, not necessarily, no more so than herpes zoster, which is chicken pox. Okay. Or varicella zoster, which is a herpes, uh, herpes virus. So, I mean, that also could pose health risk especially when you're older. Mm -hmm. But, you know, HPV could be a health risk if you end up with cervical cancer. Right. Right. For sure. The one that you kind of left off there was like HSV-1 and somewhat HSV-2, right? Is 
a lot of times the stigma is is far worse. Gonorrhea and chlamydia. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I think the stigma around all of STIs is bad. And just having one because because we feel dirty for what we're doing, yeah. right? I mean, it's not so much the infection that's so awful because more people have health problems from influenza. And yet we we are like, no, we don't want that vaccine or no, we're not going to get it, right? right? But if influenza was sexually transmitted, they're probably everybody would probably be getting a vaccine, <laughs> possibly, yeah. you know? Right. So we forget that there's other infections that we transmit to each other, but just not through sexual contact that actually play a much greater role in our health than some of than these STIs. Right. Yeah. And a lot so of it really, goes back S- to the shame of it all. Oh, yeah, because it feels dirty. Like, just think about the language people use. When they say that they're negative, they use the word clean, right? Oh, I had my test and I was clean. Again, we're using this language to signify that what we're doing is dirty and shameful. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Well, and and, and maybe along those lines of sort of having something versus not having something, are are some of these STIs treatable and curable? You've talked a little bit about HPV where your body can clear the virus. Um, mm-hmm. What are, I mean, kind of going through that list again, like which of them do we have effective treatments for versus which ones are sort of terminal, even though they're not like, they're not going to cause you necessarily. Or maybe more chronic. Or chronic, yeah, probably better than terminal. Okay, so, <laughs> so we'll, break this, we'll break this up in two big categories. The two biggest categories, bacteria and viruses. When you get a virus, you always have that virus. So every single cold virus you've ever had still lives in your body. But your immune system is strong enough to fight it, and so it doesn't come back. So let's say you get a cold, you clear it. A month later, you get another cold. It's not the reactivation of your old cold. It's a whole new virus. Viruses stay in our body. Bacteria don't. Bacteria could be, you could get way sicker off of a bacteria like pneumococcus or uh, meningitis, a lot of men, some men, gonococcal meningitis, they're all, they're a bacteria. But bacteria could be fought with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. So that's why when people go to the doctor and they have a cold, they're like, give me an antibiotic. And we say no, because it's a virus and you don't need antibiotics for a virus. You need it for a bacteria. Right. So the bacteria that we, is treatable are uh, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, and I'm leaving out some like trick, which is more of a parasite, but it's also treatable by a bacteria, I mean, by an antibiotic. And then the viruses are the ones that don't go away, but we could suppress them to a degree that it's undetectable, like HIV. But then the other viruses that we have no treatment for to like suppress to a degree where they're undetectable are herpes simplex and human papillomavirus. We have a vaccine against human papillomavirus. It treats nine strains of HPV and understand there are thousands of strains, but it treats the strains that are most at high risk of causing cervical cancer as well as the strains that cause genital warts. Mm -hmm. So that's a way of preventing it. We do not have any vaccine against uh, herpes simplex, but we do have three antivirals that help decrease the risk of shedding and decrease the risk of actually breaking out in 
in a in lesions. Okay, but it's not a hundred percent. Right. Right. And and so when your when your body is suppressing these viruses, whether it's HPV or, or HSV, are you, you are, at that point are you less likely then to to transmit it? Much the same as if if you're. Uh, viral load is undetectable with HIV. You're you're less likely or unable to to transmit it. So we're talking about herpes specifically in this one. Sure, or or, or HPV, either one. So there's no antiviral against HPV. The only thing we could do about HPV is do the vaccine to help prevent it. Okay, it's not a hundred percent, but it definitely has made a significant impact in women dying from cervical cancer. Most of the impact is outside of the United States because there's more women in developing countries who get cervical cancer. So it definitely prevents, helps reduce the incidences of cervical cancer. There's no vaccine against HIV, but we do have PrEP, mm-hmm. which helps decrease the viral load. We have nothing of the sort to that degree for herpes simplex, one or two. We do have these three antivirals, and they reduce the risk of transmission about 50%. Okay. So there's still... So not 100. Right. Yeah. There's still the chance, but it's less. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, medications and medicines could only go so far. The other, you know, let's say it's 50% reduction. The other 50% reduction is achieved through communication and testing. Right. Right. Yeah, and and not necessarily to prevent it, but to make your partners aware, right, that of what. But I think making each other aware can help prevent oh, transmission. For sure, for sure, a hundred percent. So a quick a quick clarification, or maybe a clarification for us on like HPV, right? So let's say you contracted HPV and you had genital warts, and you're like, okay, well, I have genital warts right now no sex because they're, I'm not able to cover them with a condom where they are. And then in three months or six months, the genital warts clear up. Are you now able to safely say like, okay, we can, I can have sex again, you know, PIV sex or whatever form of sex you want. And because the warts are gone, I am no longer able to transmit that or my my risk of transmission is reduced yes yes okay that's i mean that's what we are saying now you know you might have been able you might have been expressing that virus before the warts even came out though. right right for sure so it's well like, that, yeah that's I, why hpv is one of the most common ones because it's easily so easily right. transmitted right exactly but our but our immune system fights it really well as yeah. you know so really when you see them I don't, you know, once you see them, it's almost like your immune system is already fighting it. So once you get rid of them, things should be, and I'm using should because we don't know 100% that you should be fine to be able to have sex and not transmit it. Now, your partner may have a good immune system and could and may have gotten exposed already, but just they won't express it because they just fight it. Right. Right. Let's like, if a female was diagnosed with HPV, but their male partner was does not have there's no testing for hpv and so that there's no symptoms they don't know right so they could be spreading it without knowing but all of our immune systems are continually fighting it off the problem is it's so common right that it's right and that people don't know whether they have it or not and so you're spreading it 
the key is to try to get rid of those strains or d- decrease the transmission of the strains that cause cervical cancer. I mean, I, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. When you shake somebody's hand, do you have to look at their hands to make sure they don't have warts on them? Or, right. or do you just shake their hand? Right. You know, I mean, it's funny. Like, we don't mind if we shake somebody's hand and they have warts. Or we give them a hug or we kiss them on the neck and they have some skin tags, right? I mean... We're not afraid of that, but oh my God, it's on your genitals and it must be bad. Exactly. Yeah. Where it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Right. I got genital warts from sitting on a sauna, like a wood sauna. Okay. Without a towel underneath me. Yeah. Huh. I mean, you can get it without having sexual contact either. It's a virus. Sometimes viruses live on surfaces. Right. Hepatitis C, which we didn't talk about, is incredibly. Uh, you know, that virus lives on surfaces for hours. So that one is very readily transmittable. You don't have to have sex to actually get it. Mm-hmm. But most people do. Most people have to have anal sex or use IV drugs or have like some blood a break in their barrier, a blood barrier break. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, thank you for, for kind of clarifying a lot of that because I think these are some misconceptions that are out in the world is, right? If mm-hmm. If you don't have any symptoms, well, you don't have it anymore. But clearly it's your body is suppressing the virus. The virus is still in your body, just, just as if it were the flu. And, right. and that is, that's just a fact. And, and the thing that is with human papilloma virus is sometimes you do see it reactivated. It's very rare, but you sometimes I do see it reactivated in women where at age 40 or 50, all of a sudden they're coming back or with the HPV showing up on their pap test. Mm-hmm. And, they're like, what? How come? It's it may be because they just had a dip in their immune system, where all of a sudden it's allowed to kind of come back. Right. Right. And unless it's causing a problem, we're not. It's not like we're super worried about it. Right. We're like, okay, we'll just monitor you, and we'll, you know, you'll be okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's just like I mean, with so many other viruses out there that live in your body, that you know, your immune system could dip, and you could have a flare out of, of many different exactly. types of things, not just necessarily an STI. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But it's the shame and stigma around STIs that we got to try to get rid of a little bit because you feel, yeah, you, you have this dirty feeling, but if you have an outbreak of something else, you don't necessarily, necessarily feel dirty. So exactly, exactly, exactly. And that's my point. And I really think it's just more tied into our shame around sexuality right. than anything else. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I think of it like our sex negative backpack, like all the stuff that we carry with us that make us feel uncomfortable or sometimes they're actually useful things we put in our backpack can be very important like water and snacks right will help us keep going but sometimes if we just pick up too many rocks on our hike it's just going to slow us down and make us like feel more fatigued and scared so it's kind of the same things i i see our risk tolerance like oh i have a really low risk tolerance i can't i don't want to have sex with anybody that's ever had an sti ever that probably means that you're carrying around a lot of stuff in your backpack mm-hmm. that it's pretty heavy and maybe taking it off and examining what's in there and what's that fear coming from why is that tolerance so so low and then somebody who has a really high risk tolerance is like, hey, yay, I'm just going to have anonymous sex in all the bathhouses and not use condos because I believe everybody's on prep and I'm not going to worry about it. Well, that doesn't serve us either, right? 
we have to have something right in the middle where we have what we need and we have we can let go of what doesn't serve us. Yeah. And you know, when I do my my teachings on STI, I really like to start with that concept because it helps us understand where we're at in our comfort, in our body, and in our own sexuality. Yeah. I really like that concept. It makes so much sense because you if you're prepared and you know what level of risk you're you're willing to take, mm-hmm. that can go so far mm-hmm. and and make mm-hmm. make you so much more comfortable moving through the world as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and 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 to that same and right, we can use condoms and even oral barriers and vaccines and prep and all of these different things. Mm-hmm. And and there's still a level of risk, right? Mm-hmm. So eliminating risk a hundred percent is is just it's not possible, right? Well, unless you're abstinent. <laughs> right. I have a question for you. Do you drive a car? I do, yeah. Okay. Do you wear a seatbelt? Yeah. I do. And do you have an airbag? Yeah. Yeah. And do you stop for all the traffic lights and do what it says? Yeah, most of the time. <laughs> could you get hit by another car? Definitely. Okay. Yeah. It's exactly the same thing. You could do everything right. You could do everything right or mostly everything right and still end up in a fatal car accident or in something that's going to hurt you. Yeah. yeah. There's no way of 100% being safe in this in this world, in this body, there's no way. All we could do is just understand what, what's our seatbelt, what's our airbag, what what traffic, you know, what traffic lights do we need to, to abide by? Where could we take a little bit of a risk? Where couldn't where shouldn't we take a risk? Do I have to stop at a totally empty street? And and or could I just kind of like go pull slowly and keep going? I mean, we make these decisions all the time, and it's the same thing around sexuality. We just have so much more fear and shame about what we're doing because we're told what we're doing is not good. And oh my God, if we're having sex more than one person, and if we're having sex outside of our primary relationship, there's a whole other layer of shame and fear and guilt associated with that. Yeah. And maybe that's a good time to kind of to dig into that yeah. because you you work a lot with non-monogamy communities, right? Uh, out mm-hmm. out in... Uh, the, on the West Coast. Oregon. Yeah, in Oregon. Yeah. And so, I mean, do you mind talking a little bit about what you've sort of seen, you know, being in practice, right? You probably see people from the whole spectrum from polyamory to strictly monogamous, at least as oh, far as, sure. as far as they know, right? I guess in terms of like what you see in like the sexual health side of things and like, is there a higher occurrence of STIs in the non-monogamy community versus in the theoretically monogamous communities? Well, let me differentiate. There's a big gap of people that we're not, like we talk about just non-monogamy and monogamous. Mm -hmm. There, I want to differentiate it between ethical non-monogamy and non-monogamy and monogamy. Because there's a lot of people who are non-monogamous who kind of exist in the mainstream default world by dating a lot of different people, right? Right. Or like being in college and going to parties and hooking up. Yeah, casual dating. And yeah, and then, you know, whatever you want to call that. Mm -hmm. Or people who are um, don't ask, don't tell, or infidelity. I mean, there's a whole big group of people who are not in a primary relationship where they have made an explicit agreement to not have sex with other people. So. The people who are non-monogamous who have made an explicit agreement with each other to not have sex outside of that relationship are, of course, at the lowest risk for STIs. 
the people that are ethically non-monogamous, who who their partners know that, hey, I am having sex with X, Y, and Z, or just with you and this other person, I almost think that those two groups are almost at equal risks because they talk about it and they have conversations with each other. The people who are at the highest risk, who I see the most STIs, is this middle group. Yeah. Everybody else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Really? So we think that if you're ethically non-monogamous, then you kind of exist in this this other world where your risk is high. But honestly, in my in my experience, and maybe it's really limited, maybe it's only in the Pacific Northwest, maybe it's basically in Portland, and I am, most of the people I know are doing ethical non-monogamy and are very educated about what they need to be aware of, how to prevent it, what they need to talk about, what they want and what they don't want. Because you're almost forced to look at this backpack that you carry along with you. By being ethically non-monogamous, you have to look at your shame. You have to look at your guilt. You have to learn how to have words to communicate everything with, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas people in the default world have who are non-monogamous haven't really gotten to that place where they take responsibility for what they're carrying in their backpack. Right. Well, and they don't, they don't necessarily have those conversations. Like you said, they, they don't know they're just, you know, casually dating or hooking up or, or infidelity cheating or any number of things that, they're not as edu- may not be as educated and they're just not having right. those conversations and they're, exactly. therefore they're being a little bit more ignorant about the situation and therefore at higher risk. And and again, not everybody in the ethical non-monogamy does this. No. You know, right. there are some people that may do it more than others. And under the ethical non-monogamy, there's tons of different categories of people. Mm-hmm. So I just find that ethical non-monogamy is the biggest category, the biggest umbrella that I can put that into yeah. under. Yeah. It's good. To, I mean, and, and I think we we would largely agree, right? That yeah, okay. If you are truly in a, in a committed relationship, and nobody is secretly stepping out behind somebody else's back, right? If it is actually two people in this relationship, yeah, you're at a pretty low risk, right? You could still, like you said, you got you picked up genital warts from right. a sauna, right? And then <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. So you're still at a risk, absolutely. Just as you move through life, yeah. So right, just. You know, like anything else you do. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, part of what we talked on there was the having these conversations uh, with with your partners or potential partners. So that's mm-hmm. you know you've you've got your the stars kind of approach, mm-hmm. and I think you know maybe we can quickly highlight what that is, and then we'll put a link to your TED talk because that's a really good resource for kind of talking about that. Um, and then maybe we could talk about how how to have these conversations not with your other partners but with your doctors because that is something that is mm-hmm. is not easy to do as we've experienced ourselves right right um so stars is an acronym to kind of help re- remind you what could be discussed or should be discussed prior to any sexual intimacy or emotional intimate relationship it it's about putting everything out on the table first before you have to kind of do the guesswork. So it stands for S, the first S is sexual health or STI status. The T is for turn-ons. The A is for avoids or your boundaries. The R is for relationship to oneself and intentions with the other person. And the last S is your safer sex etiquette. And it doesn't have to be done in that order. 
it's really just to kind of remind you of like, oh yeah, this is a good thing to talk about. It has doesn't have to be done in one sitting. I teach some workshops on it and some people do it by text or email or they'll do little pieces of it. Or I, I kind of like doing it as a game sometimes with people like, hey, let's play this game and let's do this stars thing. And that way it kind of makes it less formularic and less stressful. Yeah, or potentially awkward. And, <laughs> yes. And you know what? I The people that it feels awkward to are just people who feel really uncomfortable talking about sex yeah. and have never been taught that they can more women than men are scared to know what turns them on and what they like or even understand their boundaries uh, because we're taught to be like in our culture, feminine energy is supposed to be very pleasing and passive and difficult to say no, difficult to have boundaries. And we just want to be people pleasers more so feminine energized people than masculine energized people. You know, stars can be a bit triggery for people as well Mm -hmm. as they just finally entering into that concept. I did not create this for polyamorous or non-monogamous people. I did not create this for queer people. I did not create this for alternative cultures. I actually learned it from someone, you know, I learned elements from alternative cultures, but where I really want to teach it is in the mainstream culture, is in that big group in the middle that I talked about yeah. who don't know how to co- have conversations. Yeah. That's where I'd re- really like to see it belong. Yeah. Cause that's, that's where it's most needed, I think. Yeah. Well, and if, and if you can master it there and then at some point you decide to get into non-monogamy, you've already got the skill set carried oh, yeah. carried over right it's and it's a universal skill set i think it's even important for monogamous people oh, oh for yeah sure. you know like to be able to say to your partner i don't feel like this is something that i would i would want to avoid this maybe someday i would maybe want to explore that but right now it's a no and this is really what my yeses are this is what i want this is what turns me on it could be really powerful even that part of your sexual health i change it from just sti to actual sexual health because there's so many other things that affect our sexually that in a coupled monogamous couple that's a big deal sometimes oh yeah, yeah. when when a partner can't have sex for whatever number of reasons or is having difficulty because of their medication let's talk about it with each other that's really important yeah well because it it may be hard to talk about those things in a relationship that might be uh on not so great terms right or that's established and you think you already know the other person right you know i find that when i first started stars it was like oh this is just these superficial things we need to talk about but as i've explored it more and more over the years i realize it's really deep I realize that we need to know our own stars and that by actually knowing ourselves, it makes us have to really think deeper about ourselves. And by communicating it with a partner or partners, we actually are creating much deeper, authentic, vulnerable relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. So it's an integrated, I like how Courtney just called it as an integrative disclosure, but it's an integrative disclosure to create deep, authentic relationships. Yeah. Right. Right, for sure. In talking to your doctor, how mm-hmm. how do you recommend people bring up the subject of sexual health and be comfortable, especially if they feel like they don't have a doctor that might be open to talking about that? Because that can be really uncomfortable. Well, and I think it, it gets kind of highlighted, right? If it's if you're in a monogamous relationship, or even if you're just casually dating around, I think that's mm-hmm. almost more accepted, right? It's like, oh, well, yeah, mm-hmm. I have lots of sexual partners, but I'm not married. 
But when you when you go in and your doctor and we've actually just had this recently happen where they're like, blah 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 blah. While you're married, you don't have any need for this, and and it's like, well, wait, <laughs> you just kind of skipped over like you made a big assumption, right? And so being able to broach that subject, and be like, well, yeah, I am married, but here's here's this other piece of information, and I've caught a little shame from my doctor for it. And I guess mm-hmm. ways to have these conversations, or maybe it's, is it just find a doctor who's not, not going to shame you? I don't know. You know, unfortunately, part of our job is shaming people. <laughs> and I say that because like, oh, you smoke? You got to quit smoking because it's going to cause cancer. Oh, you're obese? Well, you're going to have heart disease, you know? You need to be bluntly honest with them. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is that we are in power. Our power exists in that we can make you healthier and better. And so we're going to carry our own shame into the conversation with you. Right. And it's very challenging to be asking for help from someone who carries their shame unconsciously. And the best one can do is be open and honest and recognize that you're going to do some emotional labor here. Yeah. Right. And that kind of sucks. I mean, it really does. It kind of sucks to be like, let me tell you who I am and what I do and hope that they don't shame you or put their stuff on. But when they do, it's their own shit. And I don't know how to say that any better. There's no way of knowing what's going to happen. You know, where do you, if you live in the South, then probably most of the physicians that you you see are going to be ones who are like, who may shame you for certain life choices that you made. Mm-hmm. If you live in the Pacific Northwest and you're obese and you're not exercising and riding your bike everywhere, well, you might get shamed for that, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, so much of it depends on the cultural standard. In, the, in Portland, I don't think that there'll be any physicians that bat an eye right. to people being non-monogamous. In fact, I teach how to be a sex-positive healthcare provider, and I realized when I teach it to Portland, it's like, ooh, I almost don't have very much to say because they kind of get it. Yeah. I prefer teaching it to to physicians and healthcare providers who really don't even understand. We're like, why should I ask people their pronouns? That's silly. Why are people shouldn't be having sex outside of a monogamous relationship? It just makes them have get a lot of STIs, right? I mean, you know. It's changing our, expli- our you know, unconscious biases. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for people who may be in those situations with their doctors that they feel like they're not being heard? Would you recommend them trying to find a different doctor or, or just trying to be more assertive. assertive with it? Well, I mean, I think if you're in the situation where you have to be assertive, be assertive. But if you leave a doctor's office and they're shaming you for whatever reason... Find a new provider yeah. because you can't work with somebody who just makes you feel bad about yourself. Right. You really need your provider to be an ally with you. You know, you need them to be able to help reduce your risks, not say that what your risks you're taking are bad or making any judgment about whatever you're doing. Right. right. Yeah. And it, it sounds like kind of the summary there is it's going to be a little awkward probably to bring it up uh, at least the first time. And mm-hmm. And I mean, it is what it is, right? And and you might get shamed, but it's again, it's not your shame; it's it's their shame, 
right? And they're projecting. Right, absolutely. And and I actually think that the sooner and quicker you bring it up, the easier it is just to get that out of the way. Yeah. So like if you're going brand new to a physician, just say, hi, I am a cis, you know, cisgendered male who is in an ethically non-monogamous relationship. And this is what it means to me. Or I like to participate in kink and BDSM. And this is what it means to me. So, because unfortunately there probably is a lot of education that one has to do to, for your provider, since you almost have to assume that they don't understand any of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just better to put it out there and see how they respond than to be like, oh, I'm not going to tell them because they're going to respond negatively. Then if they find something, they're going to shame me. Right. So put it out there at the beginning, you know, and, and, and explain it. And if it's not a good fit, well, move on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Going back a little bit, just to to the disclosure piece, do you have things or ways that you recommend disclosing if you have something to disclose, right? I, I was reactive for this or this. We've heard different people come at it with different approaches. Some people say, well, you have to do that in person. Some people prefer to do it via text. Some people put it in their online profile. In your opinion, is it just sort of like whatever makes that person more most comfortable? You know, any way people feel good about disclosing is the right way. Yeah. You know, disclosing is so individual and it's so, it could be so challenging. It could be so hard. It could be really easy. I had a partner once who would just like, hey, I have herpes simplex type two. It is what it is. And, you know, this is, this is part of who I am. And honestly, it just made it so much more comfortable. I was like, oh, he accepts it. It's fine. You know, we talked a little bit about risks and, you know, I did my little understanding of what that meant for myself. And then I just moved on. Everybody has baggage. I'm just going to, let me put that out there. Everybody has baggage. This is just one thing. (laughs) It's just one thing. It doesn't make you bad or good. Some people have mental health issues and that comes into our relationship. Some people have financial stresses that comes into our relationship. Some people bring children or other people into, you know, into whatever relationship. So having an uh, STI such as herpes, there's no right way of disclosing it. Just like you may disclose anything else that's personal about you. It's just important to do it Mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And be honest. Are there anything else that you feel that we didn't cover that you'd like to bring up? You know, I I think I would like to say that the idea of integrative disclosure or STARS is really about empowering oneself. It's really about figuring out what it is that you need, what you desire, and how best to let another human being know that. And part of that is disclosing the stuff we carry with us, our traumas, our infections, our life. And the other part of it is also disclosing our joys and all the good things that we have about us. So it doesn't really matter what those elements are, as much as it is practicing and learning that that's an okay thing to talk about with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. That's very well said. It's like she does it for a living. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's like, that's my passion project is trying to help people understand how important it is to know oneself and to be able to 
be vulnerable, right? right? It's all about being vulnerable with each other. And 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 STIs are just one small piece of who you are, right? Absolutely. Or, or Absolutely. your sexual health, right? Yeah. It's you know. Right. So I, I do have one one more medical question. Maybe I should have asked this way earlier, but you had mentioned, right? That okay, you you went and got a pap, and it said uh, you had you tested reactive for HPV. Can it later on you will test negative for HPV and then you could test yeah. positive for HPV? Is sometimes okay, and th- is that the same then for like herpes uh, one and two? Or once you test uh, positive for HSV one, you will likely always test positive for HSV one. Yeah, it's a really complicated question because it's it goes into testing and what testing means mm-hmm. and testing for hpv is very different from testing from hsv okay okay so testing for human papillomavirus is very different from testing from hu- uh, herpes simplex right okay i've heard that there can be false positive with with herpes simplex okay. so as i said it's it goes into testing uh-huh. so if you want to deconstruct what testing means testing for herpes simplex is recommended that when you have a lesion you actually take a swab and you touch that lesion to collect the virus and then test for the virus when you do that sort of test a positive is a positive Mm -hmm. a negative is a negative the other form of testing that i think that you're referring to is blood testing serum testing for antibodies and i hate to tell people this It's a terrible test. There's a lot of high positives and high negatives. And the worst thing about it is the positive predictive value, which means how many people come out with a positive blood test that says that they have herpes who will actually eventually get the infection. And on the the test that is um, herpes select, it's about 37%. So 37% of people who test positive actually ever get the infection. So what do you do with that information? Yeah. What do you do with the positive? Do you tell people that you have the infection? Do you go on antivirals? Do you just wait and see if you're actually going to get an outbreak? Are you shedding? Could you possibly give people this without even knowing? Mm-hmm. And for that answer is a big no one knows. Yeah. We don't have an answer. If you were to get a test that come, a blood test that came back positive for HSV one or HSV two, would you recommend somebody does that like retest to confirm, or does it not really matter because you can't really? It do doesn't much. really. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. So I only test in people who ask me and understand this, mm-hmm. or two are non-monogamous, either ethical or non-ethical, and they have, been, they have a partner who has it or been exposed to a partner who has it and didn't know and they're worried and they want to know. Or if they've had a lesion that we just don't understand what it is, then just to rule that out. Right. Anyway. But really, only those three circumstances. I do not do it as a routine STI test for, for the reasons that you just don't know what to do with the information. And then if, if it comes back positive for someone who's, you know, who lives an ethical non-monogamous lifestyle, we talk about it. Right. We're like, okay, what are you going to do with this yeah. information? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful because there's so much misunderstood information out there, especially around right. uh, the herpes simplex virus. I mean, I think that if, if you had had a recent partner 
that had it. I mean, the studies thus far show that if you're exposed to the virus and you're going to break out with with it, you're going to do so within the first six months. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's good. And to the, know. you know the the funny thing about this is and is. It's such a stupid thing, right? Like if there was no shame around it, if you came back and you mm-hmm. tested positive for HSV1 or HSV2, like you shouldn't even have to worry, like, what do I do with this information? Because it shouldn't even matter, right? I mean, it, it, chances are it's never going to really affect your health in, in a for the most part. If, unless you have an outbreak, unless you're one of those people who've never been exposed to it and gets their first outbreak and they're really sick from it. Sure. And some people do have horrible herpes simplex that can be very problematic and can affect their sex life. So I don't want to discount people who get who have actual problems with it. Yeah, yeah. Just like I don't want to discount women who have HPV and have to go get their cervix cut off or have a hysterectomy or something else. I mean, it is a real infection and things can happen. Yeah. But the fear of getting it is what's so scary. Mm-hmm. Most people who get it could go on medications, could make, could manage it. You don't have sex when you feel like there's going to be an outbreak. You could feel when it's shedding because you might have a burny sensation. You know, most people could manage it, and it's just one of those things that we have with us. Right. Perfect. Well, thank thank you for the clarification because I think right there are some people who do who the symptoms are much worse than others, yeah. and yeah. and some people yeah. right it's. They have it and they never show a symptom. And it's worse usually for people who have biological vaginas. Okay. And than it is for people who have biological penises. So there is some, you know, differentiation with that. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's all about being educated and knowing mm-hmm. what risk you're wanting, you know, you're willing to take and, and what to do with the information if you do test reactive for something. I'd love to do like a YouTube video on this specifically because there's so many questions about it. Yeah. And there's so much to understand about just herpes and the fear around herpes. And yeah. Yeah. There needs to be a better a resource. I mean, yeah, that people could refer to. Yeah. Well, as soon as you make it, please let us know and we will <laughs> we will promote the hell out of it because yeah. the more people yeah. that can be educated on it and yeah, the information on it is so vast and, and varying. It's, it's, it's really hard to keep track of it all. It's a really tricky little virus. Herpes is really tricky. And that's why there's no vaccine. That's why there hasn't been a cure because it's just a really tricky little virus. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't have to control us. Exactly. Nope, that's our choice. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you again for, for everything today, for coming on and talking with us and for all of the work you do, it's, it's hugely important and we're, we're super grateful that you do it. And yeah, no, definitely. We've learned, I've learned a lot just talking to you today and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this too. So thank you so much for doing everything that you do. You're welcome. All right. Well, have a great sunny Monday and we will do the same and uh, we will hopefully talk soon. Okay. Okay. So later. And we're back real quick. Thank you to Dr. Dacker for coming on the show and sharing all of your wisdom and knowledge with us. And thank you to next week's guest, Courtney Brame, who is the founder of Something Positive for Positive People, for putting us in touch with Dr. Dacker. Without him, we wouldn't have known about her. And so thank you to him. And spoiler alert, you'll hear him next week. 
I was like, we have a continued discussion on health and STIs with Courtney. Stay tuned for that. And we'll see you next Friday. Well, and before next Friday, if you're bored and you want to go listen to another podcast. Go listen to, yeah, his. His podcast, again, is called Something Positive for Positive People, where he interviews other people who have tested positive for an STI. So check that out. It's a great resource, and he's doing amazing work. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening.